Have you noticed that at the beginning of the Christian church, the apostles didn't have very much to say about the teachings of Jesus? Last time on the Bible Study Hour, we saw how God sent Peter to Cornelius, the Gentile, which let Peter and everyone know the good news was open to all peoples. So, what's next? Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. When Peter was standing in Cornelius' house, he declared to them the truth which he and the other apostles had witnessed, that Jesus was the Christ, the Lord of all, to both Jews and Gentiles. Let's listen now as Dr. Boyce teaches from the book of Acts. The important thing is the declaration of this message that was given to the apostles and which has formed the substance or heart of Christian preaching whenever it's faithful preaching all down through the centuries of the Christian church. And that is what Peter did. Now the first of these verses we saw when we were looking at the chapter last week because it was an expression of what God had been teaching Peter up to this point. God had taught Peter that the gospel was for Gentiles too. So when he gets into Cornelius' house and has this congregation of Gentiles in front of him, he begins by acknowledging that. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Peter, of course, was prejudiced, and what I tried to point out last week was somewhat of a proper way. I meant to say by that that he didn't have it in for Gentiles. He didn't absolutely despise other races. Something of the grace of Jesus Christ undoubtedly was at work in his heart, but he approached the matter from all of the centuries of tradition that he had inherited as a Jew. And those centuries of tradition were based not on human prejudice alone, though prejudice entered in and colored it, but on the revelation of God. God had given certain laws to his people. This had come to them through the mediation of Moses on Mount Sinai, and it prescribed certain ways in which Jews were to live, certain foods that Jews were to eat, certain observances that Jews were to have. And Peter, as a Jew, received this from God and was living by it. Now, this was about to change. Many of these things were cultural and were going to pass away, but Peter was in this transition period, and he didn't understand this fully, and so I can use the word with a proper kind of prejudice toward Gentile religion. He said, as any Jew in his time would have said, including all of those who had become Christians, well, it's just not proper to fellowship with Gentiles. You go into a Gentile house, you become ceremonially unclean. If you sit down at a table to eat with Gentiles, it's non-kosher food that you eat. And if you're going to be a Jew, if you're going to be faithful to the law that God has given to Israel, you just can't do those things. This was the point of the vision, of course, when Peter, asleep on the roof, saw this sheet come down from heaven with all kinds of animals in it. Those that were clean and those that were unclean, I am sure the animals he saw were the very animals that are mentioned in the 11th chapter of Leviticus, because that's the chapter that describes the difference between the clean and the unclean. Peter saw that, recognized what was involved, and when he heard a voice from heaven saying, Peter, rise up and eat, he replied, I think without any sense whatsoever that he was contradicting the word 
of his master, the word of God, he said, no, Lord, I can't do that. You well understand I can't do that. I'm obeying your word. And in all my life, I have never eaten anything that's unclean. You see, Peter would have regarded that word from God as a test, and he would not have seen his response as disobedience. So when God said, what I have called clean, don't you call unclean, Peter was puzzled. How can that be? Here he had been taught that there were certain things he as a Jew should not do. And now here was God saying, well, I'm about to change all of this. If I call it clean, don't you call it unclean? Peter would have said, how can that be the case? But God repeated it three times. Peter got the idea that it was important. And then when the Gentiles arrived at his door, he understood rightly. He was an apostle and God was working in his life. And this was a revelation. He understood rightly that God was about to do something new. God was about to open the door of the gospel to the Gentiles as Gentiles. And therefore, when he arrived in the house of Cornelius, he said, as we've just read, I now realize, he hadn't realized it before, but I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. We had to realize it too, but of course, sometimes we don't. We have all kinds of prejudices of our own. We have denominational prejudices. We think that God is going to work with our denomination, but not with others. We have racial prejudices. We think that God has to work in our particular racial way and not with other races. We have national prejudices and so on. And this is a lesson we need to learn. God does not show favoritism. That is, the gospel is for all who will come in the way in which he's provided through faith in Christ. Now, beginning in verse 36, Peter actually gets to the sermon, and he introduces it that way. This is the message. It's a very interesting sermon. Some years ago, I think quite a long time ago now, perhaps, if I remember correctly, in 1935, a Cambridge professor of New Testament by the name of C.H. Dodd gave a series of lectures on the apostolic preaching. Those lectures later appeared in a book called The Apostolic Preaching and Its Developments, 1935, and it was a very significant book because what Dodd did was go to all these sermons that we have from Peter and the others in Acts and the reflections of that same kind of preaching that we find in Paul's letters and concluded that in these early days there was a certain form to the preaching that all of the apostles and all of the early preachers followed. Dodd had a word for it. It was based on the Greek word for proclamation, the word kerygma, and that's what he called it, the kerygma. You've done any New Testament studies. You know you don't do them for very long before you come up against this term, a certain basic core of the gospel. Dodd pointed out in the course of these studies, rightly I believe, that the simplest form of that is what you find at the pen of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter on the resurrection, where at the beginning of the chapter he goes at some length to stress that the gospel he preached was no creation of Paul's or no special revelation of Paul's, but only the thing that he had received from the beginning as all the others had received it, namely that Jesus was crucified and buried and then rose again on the third day. And in two of those instances, he says, according to the Scriptures, crucified according to the Scriptures, buried and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Three points. And Dodd said, well, that's the simplest form of it. But as he examined it, using this sermon of Peter's here and earlier in Acts, he said there was a, a more elaborate 
form of the kerygma, the proclamation, than that. And this is what we find. Now, let's go through it and just see what it is that someone like Peter thought was so important for the Gentiles to learn. And understand now, as I do this, the reason I'm doing it is not as a sort of historical study to say, well, back in the early days of the church, this is what Peter thought. Peter was an apostle, and what he thought, the way he expressed the gospel, is binding because of his apostolic authority. That's what the gospel is today. What I'm going to say, you see, is that this is the way the gospel must be preached today. And when we depart from that, we do so to our own harm and to the weakening of the church. Now, here it is. This is the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news, now that's gospel, the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Now that's sort of preparatory. It's a good news of peace. And the reason it's a good news of peace is that apart from the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, we are not at peace with God. We are at war with God. Paul puts it in other terms in Romans. When Paul speaks of our relationship to God in the first chapter of Romans, he says we're under God's wrath. That's a way of saying the same thing. We would say, well, everything's all right. God says everything is not all right. We would say, as Thoreau once did, I am not at war with God, but God says you are at war with me. You're in rebellion against me. The whole human race is in rebellion against me. The race will not acknowledge my rule. It wants to fight me and fight me to the death. And that, of course, is not a vain term because when Almighty God actually did take a form in which mere human beings could fight him to the death, that is precisely what they did to him. They killed him in the person of Jesus Christ. So we're at war with God. And now, says Peter, the good news is that peace has been made. For those who will have it in Christ, Christ is the way in which it comes. A little later on here, he's going to speak of Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth and as a Jew. But remember now that Peter is speaking to Gentiles. So when he introduces the name of Jesus Christ in verse 36, he says quite appropriately in this context, who is Lord of all. Lord of the Jews, yes, but Lord of the Gentiles too. Peter's Lord, yes, but Cornelius is Lord as well. Lord of those people in that far-off day, yes, and also our Lord. This is the Jesus about whom we speak. Lord, because he's God, and because he's God, the one who is able to establish peace, removing the offense that we have erected. Now, the second thing Peter introduces here, the second part of this kerygma, or basic core of the gospel, is the baptism. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached and performed, of course, on Jesus. Isn't it interesting that that should be mentioned? If you want to study this further, you should go to some of these other sermons and see that the baptism is mentioned, but let me give just in passing the one I've already referred to, namely that summation of the gospel that Paul himself gives in 1 Corinthians. There you have the shortest form of the proclamation anywhere in the New Testament. How Christ was crucified according to the scriptures, was buried, and then was raised again according to the scriptures. Paul later on in that chapter, as he begins to talk about the significance of all of this, involves our baptism and the baptism of Jesus Christ. You find the same thing in the fifth chapter of Romans and elsewhere. Why is that so important? 
Well, when we talk about the baptism of Jesus, generally we talk about it in terms of his identification with us, because that's what he himself said when he was baptized. When John the Baptist protested and said, well, now, why should I baptize you? It rather should be the other way around. You should baptize me. Jesus said, no, suffer it to be so now, for thus it suffers us to fulfill all righteousness. He was saying, I want to identify with people, and I want to go through all of the things that are proper for me to do. So we think of it in those terms. That's not the reason, primarily, why it forms a part of the kerygma, as it does here, however. The reason it's involved in this basic proclamation of the gospel is that when Jesus Christ was baptized, God himself spoke from heaven, authenticating him as his son. And because on that occasion he was anointed visibly in a special way with the Holy Spirit for the task he had to do. The voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John saw the spirit descending as a dove upon him. And after that, he went into the wilderness and was tempted of the devil and his ministry began. It's interesting. We look at the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that they do not begin by giving us a great deal of details from Christ's early life during the first 30 years. All they tell in some instances of the birth, Matthew does that and Luke does it. But immediately after that, they pass to the baptism of John. And the Gospel of Mark doesn't even mention the birth. It just starts right in with the baptism of John. That was significant, you see, because here God himself set his seal upon Jesus Christ as the messenger, as one to whom we should pay heed. And so the early Christians, the early preachers, went out preaching the gospel, and that's where they began. Now, the third thing Peter mentions is the public ministry. Now, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. That's still in reference to the baptism and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Now, he's talking about two things there in the public ministry, doing good, that is all of the good things that Jesus did as he went around, and secondly, these special acts that demonstrated his power over Satan. We think of the exorcisms and perhaps some of the other miracles as well. The significant thing about Peter's summation of the public ministry of Jesus in this way is that he does not talk about his teaching. Isn't that interesting? Went around doing good, showing the power of the Holy Spirit in his life by healings, power of the Spirit over Satan, and so on, but he doesn't talk about all the things Jesus said. We turn to the Gospels, and we find that there are many things that Jesus said, whole chapters filled with his teaching, parables and discourses, and what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and the Olivet Discourse, and all of those things, chapter after chapter of the teachings. And yet here, you see, when Peter is Summarizing the gospel, presenting it in the way the early preachers presented it in their day, does not talk about the teachings of Jesus. Why is that? Well, the reason is that until people came to understand what it is that Jesus Christ did by his death and turned from their sin and had faith in him, becoming new creatures in Jesus Christ, they weren't capable of responding to his teaching. Jesus said, as he did in the Sermon on the Mount, that you're to be peacemakers and you're to live by the scriptures, and you're to follow a higher standard than you found 
even in the Old Testament, and you're to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and so on, through all that teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. If Jesus said those things, those things were not taught to the masses at large because, apart from the Spirit of God, they weren't capable of doing them. Matter of fact, it would be misleading. You'd talk about the teachings of Jesus. If you'd share his ethics with people, people would think, well, that's what Christianity is all about. It must be the ethics of Jesus. That's what we should do. Go out and put them into practice. And so they would develop a self-righteousness, a human righteousness, which would cause them to trust in themselves rather than in what Jesus Christ has done. Christianity again and again falls into that pattern. It makes that great mistake. But the early preachers didn't do it. You say, well, didn't they ever share what Jesus taught? Well, of course they did, because we have it in the New Testament. But that came afterwards, you see, after people had turned from their sin and had come to God through faith in Jesus. Dodd, whom I mentioned earlier, distinguishes at that point between the kerygma, on the one hand, which is this basic preaching of the core of the gospel, and the didache. It's another Greek word, which means the teachings. The kerygma is what was proclaimed to the world, and when people are repented and came to Christ, then the didache followed. He began to teach them Jesus' ways, but only after they were regenerate. Well, the next item Peter mentions is the crucifixion. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, and we are witnesses, of course, of the fact that they killed him by hanging him on a tree. Peter doesn't elaborate here upon the significance of that death, but we would suppose, rightly, I'm sure, that as he had opportunity and his questions were asked, this is the chief thing he would speak about. What was the point of Jesus dying? Here God had sent his messenger, he had anointed him, he was one to whom we should listen. Why did he die? And why is that such a crucial, central thing in this basic proclamation? Well, the answer, as I trust we know, is that he died for us, died in our place. This is how he made peace. It's the point at which he starts this good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He made peace, as Paul says elsewhere, by his death, by taking the offense against us, God taking the offense and nailing it to his cross. See, the picture that we have there is of our sin, which has been built up like a great wall between ourselves and God. We're unable to be at peace with him. We're on the opposite side of the divide, and we're fighting him all the time. How is that to be removed? Oh, it'd be all right for God to say, well, I'll help you live better, but there's still the offense. What are we to do about that? And the answer of the cross is that God took all of that sin and in a figurative way placed it upon Jesus Christ and punished it there. This is the whole symbolism of the sacrifices, how one who had sinned could take an innocent animal and could bring it to the priest and have it killed. That innocent animal, in a symbolic way, dying in the place of the sinner. Sinner deserves to die, but now the animal is dying instead. God accepts that death in place of the death of the one who has sinned. Now, the Old Testament saints, as well as the New Testament saints, knew that the blood of sheep and goats doesn't take away sin. But it was a symbol pointing forward to the death that would be sufficient, namely the death of Jesus Christ. That takes away sin because of who he is. He's God. He's God dying for us. Because he's God and infinite, his death has infinite value. And so when he died and we trust him, come to God on the basis of his death, that sin is removed. And what was previously a relationship of hostility becomes a relationship of peace.
Verse 40, the next item in this proclamation concerns the resurrection. But God, says Peter, raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Wasn't seen by everybody, he says. Peter acknowledges that. But he was seen by witnesses whom God had chosen in advance to be witnesses. Who are they? Well, says Peter, we are the ones. We're the ones who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. It's interesting that he stresses eating and drinking with Christ because it's a way of saying, you see, that it was a real resurrection. It's not a question of some mystical appearance of a disembodied Christ, the kind of resurrection that you sometimes see in the movies that Hollywood makes. It wasn't a resurrection in faith, that is the faith of the early Christians. So they thought, well, he must live in the sense that his spirit lives on. It wasn't an hallucination, as if they were so much in love with him that they just couldn't bear the thought of having him dead, and so they imagined that they saw him in places. Or it wasn't just his spirit somehow present with them, inspiring them or lifting them or carrying them on. It was a real resurrection. It was a real body, and they sat down at a real table with a real Christ, and together with him they ate and drank. That's what Jesus did in the upper room, you know, to convince them that he was real. They saw him, and that's just what they thought. They said, well, it's a ghost. And so he sat down with them, and he ate with them in order that they might recognize that he had a real body. He was really risen from the tomb. In other words, he was a victor over death, just as he was a victor over sin. And it's on that basis that he is appointed the Lord of glory and the judge of all, which is the point at which Peter ends. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Peter gets to the end of this sermon and gives what I called the application or the invitation. All the prophets testify about him that everyone, here he's being universal again, you see, this everyone includes Gentiles as well as Jews, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now let me go back to the point I made earlier. This is the gospel. There's no other gospel. Sometimes you hear people talking about different kinds of gospels. Back in the last century, there was a gospel that was called the gospel of inevitable progress. It was really a secular thing. It had to do with Darwinism and the Industrial Revolution and the progress of the Western nations and their prosperity at that time and so on. But it had a religious element, and the religious element said, well, Jesus Christ came to inaugurate his kingdom, and his kingdom is coming, and it's going to come gloriously. And the Christian version of what's going on in the world is this great kingdom. It's just going to come, and all sin is going to be wiped out, and everything is going to be nice. And that was conceived in secular terms. That is not the gospel. Don't misunderstand me. Jesus Christ has a kingdom. I believe he's going to come one day and establish that kingdom, and I believe he's going to establish it upon earth. Some people disagree with that, but I think that's what is going to happen. But you see, that gospel of an inevitable kingdom is not the gospel. The gospel is what we find here. Sometimes people talk about a social gospel. There's great emphasis upon that in the earlier decades of this century by men like Walter Rauschenbusch and others. They saw that 
the social aspects of Christianity had been neglected by Christian people. And so they began to stress all these social things, which in themselves are quite important, but which in their handling of it superseded the real gospel. And so Christianity became doing good things, feeding the poor, helping those who were downtrodden, and so on. We have something similar today in the liberation gospel or liberation theology. It's the idea that what Jesus Christ came to do is set us free from oppressive social and political powers. The enemy is the system, and Christianity breaks us through from that. Now, don't misunderstand. I think when Christianity comes, there is liberation. Political systems are changed. Progress does follow. Social things are certainly part of the outworking of the faith, but that is not the gospel. The gospel is what we find here. The gospel of the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, whom God sent, anointed with his Holy Spirit at the baptism, who went about doing good and demonstrating his power over Satan and the forces of evil, who was crucified by wicked men and raised the third day. His resurrection was witnessed by the apostles, and this same Jesus, in his resurrection form, commanded them to go about and preach this gospel to all nations, reminding them that the day is coming when this same Jesus, who died and was raised again, is going to return as judge of the living and the dead. That's the gospel. And may I say that's the gospel God blesses. Whenever we preach something else, oh, it may produce visible results. People may go do good things, and we say, oh, isn't that wonderful? And that's true, it's good. But it's not the gospel. It's not what God blesses, because this is what God uses to change lives. What God uses to bring new life is what God uses to turn men and women from a life of sin to righteousness and empower them to do it through the Spirit of the living Christ. And you see, that's the way the chapter ends. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. What message? The message of the social gospel? No. Message of liberation theology? No. The gospel of progress? No. This message. While they heard that message, the Holy Spirit, who blessed the message because he had given it, came upon them, and they were all saved. This was a great puzzle to those Jews that had come up from Joppa with Peter, that the Holy Spirit had been poured out, and I'm quoting, even on the Gentiles. You see, it's not that the Gentiles couldn't be saved. Remember, that's what I started with. Of course they could be saved if they became Jews. That's what they thought. But you see, they hadn't become Jews. They were still Gentiles. And yet the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them exactly as the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the apostles prior to Peter's first preaching at Pentecost. I put it that way, you see, because here the Gentiles are brought into an exactly parallel position, not merely with the Jews, but with the apostles. Because when Peter went out preaching at Pentecost, he preached, they repented, they were baptized, and after that the Spirit came upon them. And when they went up to Samaria, the people believed, but the Jews had to come up from Jerusalem, lay their hands upon them, and then they received the Holy Spirit. Here you see the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius, this utterly... Entirely, 
Gentile congregation received the Holy Spirit just as the Jewish apostles had received the Holy Spirit in the upper room. That's why this chapter is called in some commentaries the Gentile Pentecost. And they were not compelled to be circumcised. Peter looked at them and said, you know, can anyone find any single reason? Give a reason. Here's your time. Anyone find any single reason why we shouldn't baptize these Gentiles? Because after all, we've preached the gospel, same gospel was preached to us, and they have believed just as we believed, and the Holy Spirit has come upon them just as he came upon us. Why shouldn't they be baptized? Nobody had anything to say, and so they baptized them. And without being circumcised, without becoming Jews, they were received rightly, properly, and victoriously into this one great growing international church of Jesus Christ. And yet I wonder if Peter didn't worry about it just a little bit. The very last line says, they asked Peter to stay with them a few days. Not many lingered on in that Gentile home, and he ate that Gentile food, unless he fasted for three or four days, which I kind of doubt in Peter's case. That meant it wasn't kosher food. And I wonder, I just wonder, if Peter wasn't thinking, in a few days, I have to go back to Jerusalem and explain to all those people there what I've done. He was worried. He was worried with some cause, because the next chapter says that when he got there, they began to criticize him, criticize Peter, the apostle, to say, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Peter had to defend it all, which is what he does. Well, he may have been criticized, but he was right. He did the right thing. Later on, he wavered and did the wrong thing. And this became a great struggle in the church. It's the struggle that's reflected in the book of Galatians as Paul had to fight it out with legalizers from Jerusalem who said, yes, yes, Gentiles can be saved, but first they must be Jews. Paul had to fight it out, and, and even Peter, subsequent to this great revelation, wavered. But here he did the right thing, and we do the right thing as well when we take this same message and proclaim it not just to people like ourselves, but to everyone. Let us pray. Father, bless these truths to us. We confess that it is easy for us, even when we know these truths, even when we have been made alive in Christ, to somehow waver because we listen to the world and we get off the track and we begin to think, well, maybe it might be better to do it like that. And we forget that we're not called to do it like that. We're not called to listen to the world, but we are called to be witnesses to this gospel. So, Father, help us to do it, to be faithful in our personal witnessing and bless it as it has always pleased you to bless this great message of good news, of peace through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. Amen. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. 
drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to the Bible Study Hour.